Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the Irish Beautiful Freak Defeats European Poster Child edition. I'm Amy Keene. Now, Cardiff hosted this episode, but he's sick and a bit too hoarse to do his own introduction, so I'm stepping in. On the show today, Cardiff speaks with Stephen Kinsella, an economist at the University of Limerick, and they discuss the lessons that people should, and just as important, should not learn from Ireland's experience of crisis, austerity, and recovery. Stephen has contributed a chapter to a new book called Austerity and Recovery in Ireland, which is edited by William Roche, Philip O'Connell, and Andrea Prothero. Now, a bit of context is needed here before we start the chat. Ireland's recession started in 2008 and was incredibly deep, with unemployment eventually hitting 15%. And it would have been higher if it weren't for the massive numbers of people who fled the island. The Irish government actually started imposing deep spending cuts and tax hikes in 2008. And you might recall that Ireland also received bailout funds in 2010 from the so-called Troika of the European Central Bank, the IMF, and the European Union, which meant to stabilize the Irish financial sector. But the austerity had already started in Ireland by the time the Troika showed up. What's interesting is that the Irish economy, despite austerity, started recovering within just a few years after the crisis and is now one of the fastest growing in Europe. But that doesn't mean that austerity in Ireland was a good idea. Stephen's nuanced contribution to this book explains why Ireland is more of a beautiful freak than a poster child for austerity. It also might be the best concise explanation that we've come across of the macroeconomic forces at work in Ireland during this time. Here's our chat. Stephen Kinsella, thanks for being on the show. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you. I want to actually start with a very clear description of your thesis in this chapter of the book, and then we'll work our way back to it. And I think it goes something like this. You argue not that the Irish economy managed to recover the way it has because of austerity and the idea of confidence fairies or whatever, but rather that a combination of elements unique to Ireland allowed the country to recover in spite of austerity. Is that right? Yeah, that, that, this is exactly right. My thesis essentially is that when you think about austerity as sort of cutting the state's budget to stabilize public finances or, you know, restore confidence through wage cuts and the confidence from the bond markets coming back, you know, and then the changes investment expectations by lowering some future tax burden. Like when you think about austerity like that and maybe define it that way, the Irish economy can't be considered the poster child, if you like, for austerity. So you can't turn around to a country like Malaysia or Portugal or Greece and say, look, they did it in Ireland. Have your civil servant policy wonk people fly over there, ask them how they did it, copy that and paste it onto your economy. It won't work like that for a couple of reasons. The main reason is the institutional structure of the Irish economy is is sort of primed for openness. It's one of the most open economies on on earth in terms of its industrial structure and in terms of its political structure as well. It's sort of almost designed to be very, very flexible to the international economy. 
And the second big reason is the the nature of the cuts. So the cuts themselves, in addition to, ha- to taking place in a in an economy where the labor market could adjust pretty rapidly either by having lots of people emigrate, which happened, or having a relatively generous social welfare system, which would sort of act as an optimal or an automatic stabilizer to stop uh, uh, the economy from totally sliding off and keeping living standards somewhat uh, up there. All of a sudden, these two things combining made it such that the Irish economy could actually grow a little bit throughout the crisis. And I think that's those two things are really important because it's not the case, for example, in Greece, that it's a very open economy. It's not relative to us. If you look at the one good measure is just add exports and imports together and divide them by GDP. Ireland is up there with like Hong Kong and Hungary, well over 100%. And Greece is not, neither is Portugal. So we don't have that kind of open economy channel. If you want to deflate the economy, you have to reduce government expenditure and increase taxes, obviously. But it helps if you have a gigantic multinational sector that will continue to pay you tax while you have to reduce income tax, for example. And it really, really helps if you have a channel by which you can let a lot of the, uh, and now excess supply of labor uh, hit the road. This has had all sorts of, you know, very, very unpleasant effects. But um, I think one of the things that's sort of true about the Irish case, and again, it's, it's a very special case, is that the Irish pretty much started imposing austerity on themselves even before the the IMF, the ECB and the European Commission arrived, the previous finance minister, a guy called Brian Lenehan, in you know, in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, realized just how bad things were getting and really front loaded the fiscal consolidation element. So even before the Troika arrived, the Irish were kind of imposing austerity on themselves. It was really the loss of access to the bond markets that avoided that. The final kind of slight small point is that when the crisis hit this tiny open economy with a very large, mobile, very well-educated workforce, like 60% of the people in Ireland under 40 have a, have an undergraduate degree, you know, uh, so they're very flexible, they're very mobile. When the crisis hit, there was almost no national debt. So the net debt to GDP ratio was in the 20s. So there was actually a very large, uh, if you like, ceiling. There's a large amount of area above which you could go. And we borrowed, I think, up to 120% at one stage some of which was for for the banks to bail out our banking system. I think we were responsible for 62% of the entire banking rescue in the Eurozone. And just for your listeners, you know, there's only 4.69 million people in Ireland. We're about the population of Birmingham, you know, so that's quite a lot of banking rescue to do. But anyway, the you know, we were actually able to do that. We had the headroom and many other economies don't have that headroom in terms of their capacity to borrow. Yeah, that's a that's a good summary. And before we dive into the details and sort of work back to your conclusion from the past, I think it's worth noting that the austerity that was imposed did actually have the expected results that would be predicted by sort of bog standard Keynesian economics. It's just that the retrenchment in, say, investment and consumption was offset by the big boost in exports and in foreign direct investment because of the openness of the Irish economy. Yeah, that's precisely right. So if you just look at our exports as a percentage of GDP and look at our imports, the import line swings downward rapidly after 2007 and 2008 because, of course, a vast amount of the households and, households and firms 
in the economy are now no longer able to purchase at the same level that they were. Businesses fail. Essentially, the entire construction industry vaporizes in a two or three month period. And there's a debt overhang and all that. We can get maybe get into that later. But essentially, as that happens, the export line stays pretty much where it was. There's a dip because of the global recession. But as that returns, as that returns upwards, if you like, the export line stays pretty high and the import line stays permanently lower, which means our trade balance improves. So the difference between those two lines improves and it stays pretty much improving, right? And because we're now not importing bucket loads of capital from the rest of the world, particularly the UK and places like that, our banks imported all this capital, then lent it to the household sector, and which then uh, spent that capital on houses and then we sold the houses to each other. So it's a standard, bog standard asset bubble. So it's interesting like to compare the Irish experience to the Icelandic experience. In the Icelandic experience, you also had a tiny open economy, but the households didn't do all the borrowing. It was actually the non-financial corporations, the firms did all the borrowing. So then when it came time to sort of go, uh-oh, the tide is leaving, you know, let, let us see who is wearing no pants. Because the household sector is qualitatively different to the firm sector, they were able to uh, uh, devalue and, and sort of um, declare bankruptcy and things like this in a much more, a much easier way. But it wasn't complex. Like in the in the United States, you had a very complex situation, subprime so mortgages and things like this. We really didn't have that. Um, you could have had the Irish asset bubble happen anywhere at almost any time in the last 500 years, and you pretty much would have had the same effects. It was a kind of hysteria, a mass hysteria. Let, let's mm-hmm. talk a little bit more about the hysteria that preceded the Irish crisis of 2008. The sort of Celtic tiger years as they're sometimes called, are thought to be 1995 to 2007. Some people, I think, pegged the start of it a little bit earlier. But in any case, I mean, can you sort of describe what was driving the booming Irish economy during that time? Uh, You you mentioned construction earlier. And how much of that growth was actually just a catch-up to, say, other advanced economies? So um, it's quite useful to partition that period. So let's say from 1995 to 2002 and 2002 to 2007. So 1995, 2002, you pretty much had a catch-up story. So a great paper by the late Brendan Walsh and the former um, governor of the Central Bank, Patrick Honohan, called Catching Up with the Irish Hair. And it basically shows pretty conclusively, it's in the Brookings Institution papers, essentially the, the Celtic Tiger story, which is, you know, rapidly growing economy, massive net inward migration from a country that since the 1840s had been experiencing emigration all coupled with almost no inflation, vast increases in the, in the size of the state and in the performance of the state. And all of it, it was kind of a miracle. Uh, Olivier Blanchard described it as a miracle, actually, in his comment to that paper. And th- it was a miracle. The problem was that once we had reached, you know, the average levels of OECD, levels of welfare and, you know, government spending and income and so forth, um, there was kind of nowhere else to go. And so essentially that kind of catch-up period ends around 2000, 2002, and to fuel the growth, we then have this unsustainable asset bubble take over in around about 2001, 2002, with the introduction of the euro, and particularly with the availability of vast amounts of funds at very, very cheap cost to Ireland's banks, which were quite poorly regulated by it. But, you know, there have been now a, a large number of commissions and investigations and reports and things like this, and even full-blown public inquiries into what happened. And it really seems to be the case that the floodgates opened from Europe's banks to Ireland's banks. Um, there was a there was a pretty interesting demographic story that one could tell, saying lots, there's loads of young people here, they do want to build houses and stuff. 
And that was true. And it, you had a situation where poorly regulated banks get a bucket of free capital and then start lending it out to people. And I came back to Ireland in 2006. I did my PhD at the New School for Social Research in New York. And I came back and I arrived back in uh, September 2006. And literally, Cardiff, everybody I met was like, buy a house, buy a house, buy a house, buy a house, buy a house. Everyone, you know. Um, so I went to talk to the local bank manager on the University of Limerick campus where I work. And uh, I rocked up at lunchtime and I said, hi, can I, uh, I'd like to talk to somebody about a mortgage. And uh, the lady said, oh, there's no bank manager here. Uh, you know, just leave your number and we can schedule a meeting for you later. So I did. I left my card and I came back. And um, uh, about two hours later, I got this like on the door it was the bank manager she had come to my office to offer me a 105% mortgage and I remember I had been in UL about a week I didn't even have a payslip and um, uh, she she offered me a 105% mortgage and 2,000 euros if I signed up today and I'll never forget what she said for a couch she said I'll buy you a fine couch for 2,000 euros and I thought two and a half thousand dollars I thought Jesus what kind of a couch are you buying with that I didn't take the uh, mortgage the reason I didn't take the mortgage is my dad he's a taxi driver and I rang him up and said dad what's happening here he went there's something wrong here Stephen I said yeah there was and he was right uh, no economics required so there was this kind of hysteria associated with the Irish economy and that kind of went away pretty quickly in 2007 what was the uh, specific catalyst behind the end of the boom in other words was there any connection to what happened in the U.S. at around the same time? Or was there something more Ireland-specific that caused the collapse in housing prices and the subsequent problems for the banks? I think it has a lot to do with expectations and also liquidity. So when everyone expected things to keep on growing, or in an infamous phrase, there would be a soft landing, um, people assumed, well, you know, the situation will keep on going. We can't keep building 90,000 houses a year. In, in one year, in 2006, Ireland built more houses than the United Kingdom. And there's, you know, 60 million people in the United Kingdom. So that's kind of crazy. So the, the basic logic was, well, look, we know we can't keep doing this, but it'll be okay. We'll kind of just, you know, slowly, slowly calm down. In practice, it didn't. And one of the big reasons was the stuttering of the global banking system, particularly Lehman Brothers. But actually, there have been there have been other banking failures before that, particularly Northern Rock. And people have gone, hang on a second, banks are not, you know, these champions of economic growth that they had once been. And actually, it was financial market participants, particularly hedge funds, that started looking very carefully at the Irish banks going, oh, my God, these guys aren't. These guys are monoline lenders, particularly two of them. One called Anglo-Irish Bank. It lent billions to individuals and it lost its capital in kind of a spectacular fashion. There is now a bank called the National Asset Management Agency, which is currently picking over the corpse of uh, Anglo-Irish Bank and another bank called Irish Nationwide to kind of sell off some of the assets that these guys had and try to recoup some of it for the taxpayer. But these guys eventually ended up costing us somewhere between 20 and 30 billion euros. Again, to give your listeners a sense of scale, the entire GDP of the Irish economy is 200 billion euros. It's a lot of money to lose. And it was pretty much vaporized around about mid-2008, early 2009. So the financial market participants, anyway, figured out there was something wrong with the Irish banks, started betting against them in the markets. Share price started sliding and their credit lines started drying up. And that was when they started going to the Irish government and saying, guys, you really need to start thinking about bailing us out. And, you know, they went around trying to get the other larger banks to buy them and stuff like this. And it just, you know, it, it, obviously none of it happened. And the government 
the Irish government, again, for a uh, sense of scale, you know, roughly 200 billion euros of GDP, eventually ended up guaranteeing the assets and liabilities of a banking system worth 440 billion, which was a mistake, <laughs> putting it mildly, because immediately the estate, given that it couldn't print its own money, was kind of insolvent. I want to note that you include in your chapter this great quote from Minsky, where essentially it describes what happened in Ireland almost perfectly, where there is a collapse in um, asset prices, which leads to financial market failure, which then leads to falling capital prices and an investment decline, which leads to falling profits, which leads to further financial market failure, and so on. I mean, it is almost as if he wrote it in response to what happened in Ireland. Of course, he wrote it a couple of decades earlier. Yeah, I might out myself here as a bit of a Minsky hipster, because we were studying Minsky in 2003 and 2004 at the New School uh, for Social Research with Lance Taylor and Duncan Foley. And, you know, they were like, well, you know, this is an interesting guy and it's, it's an interesting model. And, you know, you should just sort of study it. And it was it was amazing when I had come back to Ireland and sort of started looking at the Irish case through a Minskian lens, how incredibly uh, accurate he was in institutional terms. And that's because Minsky, and this is kind of sort of my point in the chapter as well, Minsky made a huge amount of emphasis and put a huge emphasis on the role that institutional and inter-institutional dynamics play in how crises resolve themselves or how they emerge in the first place and these kind of psychological effects. And they're really, really important to understand. And, they, you know, when, when you start seeing these commonalities, and I think Minsky had four big examples, when you start seeing these commonalities across the situation, you go, well, hang on a minute. If, if this is true, well, then it, it, it sort of implies there's only one solution, or there's two solutions. Either big government bails you out, or the big bank bails you out, right? So it's either some kind of central bank thing, or some kind of big government thing. In the end, in the Irish case, it was a combination of both. The first thing that happened was there was a supplementary budget in the middle of the year. The wheels were put on the, the Irish economy in terms of government spending and, and taxation. And then the state started borrowing to finance current expenditure. It turned off capital expenditure entirely, which has created a huge problem now. So no roads were built, no houses were built, no schools, no nothing. And so essentially that whole arm of the state stopped happening, which has now caused a huge housing crisis. So we have ho child homelessness in Ireland for pretty much the first time now. The nature of the cuts, while they were designed by a coalition government of a centre-right party called Fine Gael and a, a centre-left party called Labour, the cuts were designed to safeguard core allowances like pensions and things like that. There was a public sector pay cut as well. In the end, the nature of the cuts were such that they were deeply regressive and they really did hurt the average person. And maybe this is a failing in, in the chapter. It doesn't really bring that out. There's a great book edited by Brian O'Connell and his colleagues uh, just came out about a month ago on, in Oxford University Press called The Children of Austerity. And one of the things that book shows is that child poverty in Ireland doubled over this period. Right. So children in, in absolute poverty or in, in relative poverty, depending on your measures, it just doubled. There's a whole generation of Irish people now who are growing up uh, in hotel rooms because they, there's no social housing for them. And this is because at the time the government had to turn off its capital spending engine. It's going to result in a sort of a generational shock, if you like, that'll only play out in maybe 10 or 15 years. To stick to the timeline, 2008, and as you just suggested, the Irish recession begins and would eventually become just 
absolutely brutal. You just mentioned child homelessness. I think the unemployment rate would eventually peak at north of 15%. Mm, 15.2%, yeah. Yeah. In other words, even higher, much higher, actually, than uh, what we had in the U.S. And that's taking into account the fact that Ireland had quite a bit of emigration during this time. Yeah, a, a massive outward migration, particularly of younger people. Right. So it's it's 2008, and again, this is two years before the troika of the uh, IMF, the ECB, and the EU show up with a bailout. And already the Irish government imposes a 32 billion euro austerity package. Half of that, or almost half of that, roughly 15 billion euros, had already been imposed by 2010. And the rest of it would be implemented over the next few years. And here is where there's a quote from, um, you just mentioned Philip O'Connell and his co-authors in the book that we're discussing today, Austerity and Recovery in Ireland. Here's what they write, quote, The cumulative effects of this austerity package represent almost 20% of GDP. It is this massive effort that various commentators have described as the sacrifice of the Irish people. Unquote. So it begins then in 2008. It doesn't begin in 2010, despite the lingering association in everybody's minds between the Troika and austerity. It was actually a kind of auto-austerity, as you and I think other authors describe it in the book. Yeah, I think one of the really important things to, for listeners to understand is the deep pro-cyclicality of the Irish tax system. So most of our taxes come from income and, you know, uh, VAT, and corporation tax and in the construction industry's case, stamp duty. So every time you sell a house, the government gets a cut. We have very few what are called anti-cyclical taxes like property taxes and water taxes and stuff like that, um, which kind of tend to anchor the state's financial fortunes away from the business cycle. So when the crisis hit, the first thing that happened was all the stamp duty money went away. Then as unemployment exploded, the income tax went away and obviously our social protection expenditure budget pretty much tripled because everyone now went on social welfare. And then you had a situation where people weren't consuming anymore. Some of it was precautionary saving because of this very large income shock. Everyone was terrified. But a a lot of it was the fact that just incomes had gone away. So almost every major tax head collapsed in sort of a, you know, a monthly to in a quarterly at least or by by yearly measure. You can literally see it just dropping. So it meant that there was headroom, as I mentioned before, to actually borrow a bit more to keep the show on the road. But it, it meant that government expenditure had to come down very, very rapidly because of the scale of the deterioration in the public finances. Expenditure simply had to fall. And so there was no way to manage that that wasn't going to be brutal. I think the problem when you try to explain this stuff to Irish people is you're always explaining a counterfactual which is the, you know, a really hard right government would have gone for a three to one expenditure to uh, tax increase ratio. You know, that for every one euro that you increased in tax, you would have cut three euros in expenditure. And a hard left government would have gone the exact opposite way, right? They would have jacked up taxes, particularly on those on higher incomes, and tried to keep expenditure on some kind of downward glide path. It didn't matter how you cut that particular cake it was going to suck one way or the other, right? They, and eventually, it worked out that the ratio was kind of two to one. So for every one euro of tax increases, there was a two euro drop in expenditure, roughly speaking, across every heading except social protection and health. So health spending stayed pretty high, actually, throughout the whole crisis, which, again, it kind of got us to a situation where the average person's living standards were not being adversely affected to the point that, you know, 
people were out on the streets starving, right? Now, I understand that's a very, very low bar for uh, one of the richest countries on earth to have, but you have to understand the scale of the crisis as it presented itself to the government in 2007, 2008. Um, it was of that kind of like, are we still a country kind of scale. Uh, I have some numbers here, by the way, about uh, the scale of emigration, just to tie it all in. Uh, according to this book, about 610,000 people left Ireland between 2008 and 2015. Again, the current population of Ireland is about 4.6 million people. So that a- comes out to roughly one out of every eight or nine people left Ireland during those years, which is really kind of astonishing. Let me go to what happened when the Troika showed up. I was surprised to learn in this book, possibly because I just don't remember enough about this period, the Troika actually pressured Ireland into accepting bailout of the banking system, in part because the Troika had sort of an understandable interest in bolstering the confidence of the rest of the world in the European economy overall. So let me ask you a counterfactual of my own. Do you think that accepting that bailout was necessary for Ireland? Or do you think that the already imposed austerity combined with perhaps some new future austerity would have been enough to get Ireland back to the place where it is now, where it's growing again? Or do you think that in fact, there were some necessary benefits that came along with the money that the Troika provided. So with the benefit of hindsight, one of the things that I've learned over the years studying this stuff is that in policy, timing is incredibly important. If you you look at the moment in which Ireland goes for the bailout, and particularly to the Troika, the nature of the bailout is such that it needs to encompass some kind of banking reform because the banks are all bust, right? It needs to have some kind of structural reform because that's what the IMF likes. And it needs to have some kind of fiscal dimension to it, because of course, there's still a huge gap between the amount of government spends, the amount it takes in taxes. So everyone in Ireland knew this. But the problem was, there was no money left to run the state. The state was actually rapidly running out of cash. I think when the Troika came in, we had something like between six and eight months of cash to literally run the state. Remember, unlike in the United States or any other economies, we can't just print off money to sort of keep the the show on the road. We don't have our own currency. This sort of was a really big deal. The bond markets were pricing Ireland at default levels of risk. And when Irish, uh, the Irish National Treasury Management Agency, the people who manage our debt for us, when they went out to meet the markets, uh, they were meeting development, developing economy desks. They weren't meeting developed economy desks, you know, so it was people were kind of kind of waiting for Ireland to default. Uh, particularly on the banking debt, the senior and subordinated bonds that of these kind of like incredibly bad bust banks that, you know, they were everyone was just waiting for Ireland to default on this stuff. We did end up defaulting on some of the very subordinated debt, particularly for Anglo- Anglo-Irish Bank. But it is interesting that we didn't default on the senior stuff mainly because we were told not to by the European Central Bank, which was then funding the Irish banking system to the tune of tens of billions. And Jean-Claude Trichet, the previous president of the ECB, he was extremely stringent with this. He said, you know, we've lent you guys a lot of money, you've got to pay it back and you have to do it in this particular way. No European banks will fail. So these are these infamous letters he wrote to the then finance minister, Brian, Brian Lennon, saying like, there is no, there will be no burning of bondholders. In the fullness of time, I can actually see the logic in a political calculation where somebody goes, well, look, if we burn these bondholders, we're going to save maybe four to 10 billion, but we, we'll have a reputational shock later on. So maybe it's not worth that. If we can certainly, if we can secure lower interest rates later on, 
on our debt by being good boys and girls, then maybe maybe that'll work. But to answer your counterfactual, did we need to? In the moment in which these guys are being pushed, it's late 2009, early, early 2010, in the moment in which the Irish authorities are being pushed to take the bailout money, they are not borrowing from the markets. And so they're running very rapidly out of cash. They really don't have a choice. And in the end, the detail of the Troika's plan is pretty much the Irish plan with a few bells and whistles nailed on that eventually the next government renegotiated anyway. So ultimately, I think we probably could have done it on our own if we could have got more money from the markets to keep the show on the road. But we were rapidly reaching kind of 120% of GDP, a debt-to-GDP ratio. So, you know, it's unlikely whether we would have been able to do that absent the Troika's support. I want to now summarize a bit of what you said earlier on where the spending cuts were and where they weren't, and then sort of the corresponding effects on Irish society and the economy. So first of all, public sector capital spending plummeted. And when you combine that with the retrenchment in private sector investment, it basically meant that there was just an overall investment collapse. This is about what you would expect in Again, bog-standard Keynesian economics, the private sector in particular has a higher savings rate, begins to delever, and the economy suffers because of it. Second, government salaries, pay expenditures is that line item, also fell a bit. But the crucial category here is non-pay expenditures. They kept climbing, but within that category of non-pay expenditures, you have the following. First, you have social protection, which essentially amounts to, I believe, things like unemployment insurance, right? That kept climbing through the crisis years and is now falling a bit in part because some of the auto stabilizers have worn off. It's just not as necessary as it was through the crisis years. But it did keep climbing and it did sort of provide a cushion for Irish society. Second, health spending which essentially flattened through the crisis and is now rising, but it didn't fall. And then finally, Mm -hmm. and this is one that I know is dear to you, education spending actually has been trending down since 2007, uh, and this could turn out to be a problem for the future. Um, That's sort of the the lay of the land there. That's a, a summary of what happened. Can you take us through what the kind of cumulative effects of all of those choices are, because those are choices by the Irish government, what to spend the money on and what to stop spending money on. What kind of effects did it have overall on Irish society? And in particular, as it relates to the fact that you didn't see like riots in the streets in Ireland, you didn't see, you know, the kind of, I guess, tumult that you saw in, frankly, other parts of Europe, but also even Mm. parts of the US. One of the things I was asked by journalists pretty much in every interview I would do throughout this period is why aren't you guys rioting you know like you if you look at the scale of the adjustment as we've just described it you know and if you think about there's a very easy story to tell where you say well crony capitalists and their friends in government bailed out the banks and the guys in the banks are not going to jail and you know meanwhile my social welfare is being cut um i can't get a a place in a school for my autistic child i have uh, if i'm a public sector worker i'm 22 percent less wealthy you know there's a deep kind of injustice that seems to be being visited on the Irish people and then you have this other thing where you have you know the European Central Bank and the Troika imposing no cuts on bondholders and again like the average Irish person did not know what a bondholder was in 2007 I guarantee you they all know now 
right? And they're aware of this. And it's really interesting, actually, the social discussion that we've had about this. You know, no one in Ireland believes in the uh, infallibility and primacy of the markets. You know, in 2006, 2007, I was, you know, teaching kids at the University of Limerick, oh, you know, the markets, no, it's not brilliant, but it, it does a pretty good job pricing risk. And if you think about that, and you think about the people who bought bonds in, in Anglo-Irish Bank, and you're thinking, did these guys price risk? properly no they didn't did they deserve to get all their money back absolutely not they deserved to get six cents back on the dollar and a kick in the arse on the way out like that's all they deserved but they got a hundred cents back why i think uh, some of that was around the need to placate the confidence fairies some of that was around the need to uh, show that we were part of the european project some of it was the fact that we were being held over a barrel anyway we just didn't have a choice about where the funding for the economy was going and the people who were paying the piper were calling the tune. And some of it was a policy choice. So, for example, you mentioned capital spending fell. It's a lot easier in a political system, which is proportional representation, highly clientelist. You can ring the Minister for Finance up. You, in fact, he was from Limerick, where we were from, where we are now. And, you know, you could meet him in a pub. And people, he'd be sitting there having a drink and people would come up to him and start abusing him, right? So in that situation, like you're not going to get the Treasury Secretary of the United States rock up to him in a bar and start giving him hassle, right? You'd probably end up in jail or something. Um, in Ireland, it's a very local culture. It's very community oriented. So it's very easy to turn off capital expenditure in that situation because it's not there anyway. Nobody is protesting about a road that doesn't get built. You have to prioritize current spending in that, in that situation, um, you have to make sure that as far as is practicable, only the minimum amount of cuts can be made to people's current welfare. That results in huge bottlenecks later on. Now, I understand the policy choice that the government had to make, and I supported it at the time. But we, I was a critic of the austerity regime, of course, but I, I understand why they prioritised current over capital spending. But I, I'm still now... I'm deeply concerned about just what the capital deficit is. So we've got hospitals that are falling apart, don't have enough schools, there's a housing crisis, a homelessness crisis, as I've mentioned. All of this is related to the fact that there's been a dearth of capital spending for the last nearly 10 years now. I want to make one other point, which is that it seems that wages in Ireland adjusted through unemployment rather than through nominal wage cuts. In other words, the people who kept their jobs mostly kept their current salaries. It's just that a lot of people lost their jobs. That's another thing that would be predicted by economic theory. But you've also got this astonishing quote here, which points out something that I was just totally unaware of. Here's the quote. Relatively high levels of redistribution of income taxes with relatively generous social welfare schemes and a large social protection program. You're describing Ireland. Irish social expenditure is on a par with Denmark, Finland, and the Netherlands, unquote. You don't typically think of Ireland as Scandinavian. Well, no, <laughs> you certainly don't. And I'm, I'm, I'm currently looking out on the Irish landscape and thinking there's, this is not a Scandinavian landscape. Uh, no. So I guess the first part is around what kind of an adjustment there was, so if you imagine that you try your level best to keep current expenditure roughly as high up as you can make it, and then you try to make sure that insofar as possible, the social supports are there. And so you keep state pensions roughly uh, where they were, disability and sickness payments roughly where they were, 
and unemployment benefits roughly where they were. Like these all go down slightly, but you're not seeing the massive collapses in these uh, headings, these voted expenditure headings that you see in other countries which are imposing austerity, right? You also see a situation to the first part of your point where unemployment, it actually adjusts, uh, it adjusts as economic theory would expect, but, it, but it's Keynesian economic theory, not the kind of classical economic theory. The wage rate doesn't go up and down. It's actually the wage bill that changes. So here it's far more John Maynard Keynes kind of paleo-Keynesianism stuff, or even Truman Bewley's um, why, why Don't Wages Fall in a Recession stuff, than, you know, some kind of like, not even a new classical model, but like a real business cycle model would, would, would allow wages to go up and down. In fact, wages stayed pretty constant. And, and then again, remember, where did those people who were newly unemployed go? They either went onto the unemployment register or they hit the road, right? They went to the UK, they went to Canada, they went to Australia and that kind of stuff. Um, and that kind of 600,000 people hitting the road, that's where that comes from. Let's now talk about the recovery of the last few years to, again, sum things up to this point. Within the context of austerity, the Irish government made choices that were at least pretty defensible from the standpoint of maintaining a certain amount of societal cohesion. In other words, uh, making sure that the people who lost their jobs had some kind of support, while also the private sector did, I guess, a fairly decent job of not cutting the salaries of the people who kept their jobs. Now we have to talk about the export-led recovery, right? Give us a mm-hmm. sense of the scale of it and where did it happen? So, for instance, I don't have a great sense of exactly which sectors uh, Irish exports dominate. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that and, uh, and which companies, uh, who dominates in the Irish export sector. I guess the first thing to understand is that the Irish export sector is – it's very large. First off, there's about 150,000 people working in it of a, of a total workforce of 2.2 million people. It uh, is responsible for most of the corporation tax revenue, and it is particularly based in uh, well, three main sectors, pharmaceuticals and chemicals, ICT, and agriculture, agri-exports, um, which are very large. So in terms of pharmaceutical stuff, the Irish economy, we would make Lipitor, Heparin, Warfarin, Viagra, all that kind of stuff, right? That, you know, I think nine of the 10 biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world are located here. Some of that is because we are an export destination for the European Union. Some of that is because we have a very young and well-qualified workforce. Some of that is where we are very, very business-friendly when it comes to taxes. We do not tax these companies at the rate that they would be taxed in, you know, Denmark, for example, or even in the UK. So there's this kind of like triple lock in terms of attracting multinational funding. Then there's ICT stuff. Again, that's a large amount of that is the fact that we've got Facebook, Google, you know, Uber, these kind of companies are all located here. Sometimes they're located here for tax purposes. A lot of the time it's just to gain access to the European markets. Uh, and then we've got agriculture. This is the traditional, uh, not just uh, exports of meat, but also dairy and uh, manufactured products and stuff like that. That all goes to the UK and mo- most of it. So this is a pretty, well, three pretty strong export markets. We export lots of other stuff as well, medical devices and so forth. It's pretty high high value. It's pretty high up the uh, export value chain. And it, it, it's a large part of the reason why we're able to avoid many of the pitfalls of other uh, economies that aren't as incredibly globalized as Ireland is. It's a very, very outward looking economy by dint of the fact that it's small and it, its geography forces it to kind of play a game between the United States and the United Kingdom. In your uh, closing paragraphs of the chapter in the book, Austerity and Recovery in Ireland, you combine these ideas. In other words, uh, the idea that austerity was, first of all, a bad thing to do, 
given the scale of the Irish recession. Within the context of austerity, at least the Irish government did make some defensible choices. But actually, it was a quote-unquote dubious objective in the first place. And then you write, Irish austerity, rather than being a domestic success, was in fact facilitated by Ireland's openness to the rest of the world, unquote. In other words, austerity itself wasn't necessarily a good idea, right? The Irish hmm. government made the best of it, or at least it did it about as well as you know you could hope. But imagine how much better the Irish economy would have recovered if you still had this very powerful export sector, which you would have had in this counterfactual, and if austerity hadn't been imposed on the rest of the economy. I think going back to my original sort of thought about what austerity is, right? Let's make a, a clear distinction between fiscal consolidation and austerity. So fiscal consolidation is, is you need to reduce government expenditure, you need to increase taxes because there's only some amount of borrowing that the international markets will let you do and you haven't got your own currency, right? So that's fiscal consolidation. But if you think about austerity, austerity is, is cutting the state's budget, but in order to stabilize the public finances, restore competitiveness through wage cuts and like change investor expectations in the future, by lowering future tax burdens. Like if you just think about it like that, you kind of go, well, if that's what austerity is, and that's what Mark Blythe, who's kind of written the book on austerity for me, if, if that's how he defines it, and I think that's probably the right way to think about it, then austerity certainly failed, right? Because uh, we did, you know, reduce the state's budget, we stabilized the public finances, but we didn't restore competitiveness through wage cuts, right? As we've just discussed, the wages actually didn't go down. The wage bill changed because we were able to export a huge amount of our workforce, which is now causing problems for us later on. We didn't create uh, better investment expectations by changing our tax burden uh, in the future. The European Central Bank did that, right? So so Mario Draghi rocks out and he says, I will do whatever it takes. And then we have OMT and all, uh, a series of monetary financing uh, initiatives, which is a dirty word in Europe, but essentially it has the effect of reducing the interest rate that the Irish state paid on any of its new debt. And it also reduced the amount of money the government itself was paying. Because we're such a small open economy, by weakening the euro, that was an immediate massive boost to our exports. And then we also had the, the third uh, lovely thing of having historically low oil prices, right? So we, we import 92% of our um, energy needs. So we have these three amazing things happening to us in this moment as the economy begins to recover. We have extremely helpful monetary policy from the European Central Bank, not designed to help us now, in fairness. Like that was, if that had gone against us, if higher interest rates had have been the need of the entire Eurozone, then that's what would have happened, right? But we just got really lucky in that case. And then we also had cheap oil and a weak Euro, which would have helped our export markets. So the recovery of the Irish economy is exactly what is predicted, by the way, from any kind of like new Keynesian or post-Keynesian model, when you stop reducing government expenditure and you allow the private sector to get a bit of confidence that cuts aren't going to come again, the thing just roars back. And that's exactly what happened. And the Irish economy is not the fastest growing economy in Europe. Um, we've got net inward migration again. All of these capital deficits are still there, which interestingly, now that we have a very low yield, low growth, low inflation external environment lots of interest international capital is very interested in buying irish housing blocks because the yield on that stuff is like eight to ten percent and, and yeah so they're driving the price of some of this up because they want the yield to increase 
And so there are these very interesting local effects. When I say local, I mean at, at the level of the Irish economy. There's these interesting local effects as the economy recovers very, very quickly. It's growing very quickly. The balance sheets of the banks are recovering. Balance sheets of the households are recovering, albeit very slowly. I think the generation I'm a part of, sort of between 30 and 40, I think it's the most highly indebted generation anywhere, according to the, the various um, household financial consumption surveys that are done at the European level. And so what you see is the balance sheets of the state, the various sectors in the state, they're recovering slowly as this takes place. But there are serious distributional consequences associated with this stuff. Um, and I mentioned the child homelessness issue, but there are others. Um, and it's not clear that um, we have the fiscal capacity now that we're in the era of fiscal rules. We can't spend as much money as we're taking in, etc., etc. We don't have the fiscal headroom that we had in 2007 because our debt to GDP ratio is very high. Even if it was low, we couldn't spend it on new houses and new hospitals and stuff. So it's not clear that we're going to be able to clear this capital backlog fast enough. And of course, coming up like, like a train coming towards us is Brexit. I was struck by your kind of lingering concerns at the end of your chapter where you're worried about a couple of things. One was that the capital spending shortfall, as you just mentioned, uh, is something that would come back to bite Ireland um, you know, into the future, especially since you do have decent demographic trends, but you also have an infrastructural deficit given those trends. And also the problem of Acknowledging that the Irish economy is very open to the rest of the world, which can be a huge benefit when the rest of the world is doing well, but it also leaves Ireland vulnerable to uh, a swing in the wrong direction. Um, but we have time for just one last question, uh, Stephen, and I, I want to use it to just ask you about the fact that Ireland did not take a turn towards the illiberal in the way that in a way that other advanced economies have, the U.S. and the U.K. most notably. What do you think accounts for that, especially given that I'm asking you this question at a time where Ireland's new Taoiseach, or prime minister, is the openly gay son of an Indian immigrant and also the youngest ever Taoiseach? Is there any connection between the Irish economy uh, and this avoidance of turning towards uh, illiberalism or even a hint of authoritarianism? Well, I, th I think the first thing to point out is, yes, we do have an openly gay uh, son of immigrant Irish Taoiseach, but there's nothing quite like, the, <laughs> there's nothing there's nothing that will give you more of uh, an inferiority complex than knowing that he was in college with me. And I am um, certainly feeling very inferior today. I'm not lying to you, Cardiff, but certainly he's um, he, he's a very successful politician and a uh, very smart guy too. But um, he he is an exemplar of the kind of stuff that we see here. So, for example, the press around the world have said, oh, my God, it's amazing. You know, the openly gay son of an immigrant is now the prime minister of your country. And everyone in Ireland has gone, yeah, so? We're one of the first countries in the world to legislate for gay marriage there a year or two ago. And, you know, I think that Ireland is quite a tolerant place, mainly because of its openness. Uh, a lot of it, a lot of it has to do with our political structure. We don't have like first past the post voting the way they have in, in the United Kingdom. And we have proportional representation. And so that means that every vote matters and the various rankings of your vote within category matter even more. This makes Ireland maximally clientelist. And so it's not easy if you're in a local area to say, well, you know, I'm only... I'm only interested in the votes of uh, people who are white or people who are black or whatever, right? You actually have to ask everyone for their vote all the time. Um, and you have to be seen to be doing things for them all the time, fixing potholes, etc. It has its own problems, that structure, but it is really interesting. 
as well that it tends to eschew extremism it forces everyone into more or less center right center left groupings so that's one reason another another reason is that ireland simply hasn't had the same massive wave of migration we haven't had a refugees coming to Ireland in the same way as, say, Germany or Austria has. And so that hasn't uh, had the effect of polarising public opinion. And there is also the issue that Ireland is, is, and I don't mean this as a pun, it's quite an insular place. Most of our discussion is really about ourselves. And so I think to that extent, the wider international issues, obviously, there's concern over uh, President Trump. Uh, because, you know, when you have an explicitly nationalist uh, or even almost anti-trade agenda being spoken about that's dangerous for a country that specializes in um, being a, an export hub um, and then of course the stuff from the uk the, um, as brexit arrives the only people that will be hit worse than the uk will be ireland our guest has been stephen kinsella the book is austerity and recovery in ireland stephen's chapter is the third and it is a really superb concise explanation of the macroeconomics of ireland throughout the crisis and recovery period. Stephen, thanks for being on Alpha Chat. Thank you so much. And that's the end of Cardiff's conversation with Stephen Kinsella. It's Amy here again. We'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email at alphachat at ft.com or give us a call at 917-551-5012. That's plus one country code for our listeners overseas. Please rate the show and leave us a review on iTunes. As Cardiff says every week, it really helps people find out about us. Uh, you can find show notes at ft.com forward slash alpha chat. And the production credit this week definitely comes from a very, very horse Cardiff. Here it goes. Unlike Ireland, Lauren Leatherby is very much a poster child, but for excellence in production and editing rather than austerity. Thanks for everything, Lauren. And thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat.